0: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, how you doing, man?
1: Doing okay. Keeping busy, you know, and uh, and as we're going to talk about in a little bit, it's opening day as we're recording this, so... By the time you actually get the chance to listen, you'll be able to see if they actually had opening day. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, uh, let's dive right into the headlines. We'll talk about baseball later. So those of you who don't enjoy baseball uh, know that it's our second topic this week. And, so.
1: and we'll try to keep it brief, but still, we want to talk about it. Yes.
0: <laughs> While leading off with headlines, Hulu is teaming with the affair showrunner Sarah Treem to adapt Rodham, Curtis Sittenfeld's alt-universe novel in which Hillary Clinton never married Bill Clinton.
1: <sighs> Sorry, that was me being shocked by the alt-fiction of that world. Anyway, also in headlines, Amazon has handed out a series order for Paper Girls, a drama based on the best-selling graphic novel from Brian K. Vaughn. Netflix has renewed the summer sleeper Sweet Magnolias for a second season. And Apple has picked up the thriller The Shining Girls, starring Elizabeth Moss, to
0: series. And speaking of The Handmaid's Tale, Elizabeth Moths has also signed a first-look TV deal with Fox 21 and Hulu and is developing an anthology series for the streamer in which she would also star. And in other overall deal news, grown star Yara Shahidi has inked her own pact with ABC Studios. And Taraji P. Henson has signed a two-year first-look deal with 20th Century Fox TV and is developing an Empire spinoff for Fox in which she will reprise her role as Cookie.
1: And if it's not called cookie exclamation point, what's even the point? (laughs) Uh, HBO has renewed Perry Mason for a second season and picked up Somebody Somewhere starring Patty Cake's breakout Bridget Everett. The premium cable network is also developing a reboot of In Treatment.
0: And for more about Perry Mason's future, please check out our June 19th episode with the showrunners. Elsewhere, ABC is doubling down on efforts to bring Latinx programming to the network and is developing family drama Chicano based on the book of the same name.
1: Maybe not exactly doubling down because they canceled their only previous Latinx show. So more they're trying to dig out of a hole they put themselves in. So
0: yeah, whatever. True. true <laughs> but it's also not ABC's fault that there there are no Latinx shows on broadcast TV. So. Well,
1: it's I would say it's probably about one fifth their fault. So <laughs> they're, they're part there of the go. ecosystem. Anyway, good on them. People should be doing that. Why more Latinx shows aren't on TV? I don't understand. Anyway, in COVID production news, CBS's Love Island is ramping up to begin filming with a move to Las Vegas for season two. Okay. And the network is moving forward with Big Brother All-Stars, which will premiere in August with a live episode. Over at NBC, SNL is prepping to resume filming in its famed Studio 8H in New York, to which we can only say good luck with that. And at Disney Plus, Marvel's Falcon and the Winter Soldier has been delayed. Huh. A new premiere date has yet to be determined.
0: And wrapping up this week's headlines, former TV1 CEO Wanya Lucas has been hired to replace Bill Abbott as CEO of the Hallmark channel. Abbott was famously pushed out in January following backlash after Hallmark pulled an ad featuring a same sex wedding. And for more on what led to Abbott's exit, please go back and listen to our November 15th interview with him from episode 47. It was illuminating, to say the least, Dan. <laughs>
1: But allow us to say up front that we have an open invite for uh, Wanya Lucas to join us on the podcast in October or November to see if things are going any better at Hallmark.
0: The request is already in, my friend. Excellent. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five.
2: Number one.
0: Leading off this week, the Emmy nominations are set to be unveiled July 28th. The ceremony is still on track for September 30th on ABC. We know Jimmy Kimmel will will return as host. But beyond that, no idea what that ceremony is going to look like right now. And with the Emmy nominations coming up, it's a perfect time for a check-in with THR's awards columnist and friend of the five, Scott Feinberg. Thanks for joining us, Scott.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So this is been far from the traditional Emmy lead up, what has been the most meaningful way that the pandemic has has impacted the nominations?
3: Well, I think the if you're a TV Academy member, the, the way that it's most noticeable is that there have been obviously no in-person gatherings, which are what some of these TV Academy members live for during Emmy season. There's almost every night of the week, normally, a what they call an FYC event, where you go, you see a, maybe an episode or a clip of a show, you have a Q&A with the key people, and then they feed you your meal for the day. Or for some of these people, they'll literally bring to-go containers. <laughs> um, and photo and so, opportunities
0: with stars. And fo- et
3: right. All of that. So in a sense, also, you know, the other thing is, since people are, are not going out as much, the the traditional advertising of billboards and stuff has has been less impactful so i i think that those are the the main things that are absent i think that and in a way it may have perhaps leveled the playing field a little bit although we obviously there's still the usual trade ads and and then they they've gotten a little creative you know the places that can afford to like netflix and certain others have done virtual Panels and things that that are attempting to reach voters. I'm sure they're not as effective because some of these voters are not that tech savvy, but uh, they're doing what they can, given the limitations of the moment.
0: But the but the nomination window has remained the same
3: in terms of the specific Emmy nominations voting process, the nominations voting was not so much affected as much as pushing back the dates of the nomination announcement and now the, the show remains on track, although it's not yet clear what exact format it will take. It's hard to imagine it will the ceremony will be in person, but there may be elements of it that are pre-taped and there may be kind of the, the higher tech Zoom equivalent of of certain things. But uh, that's still sort of to be determined
1: now in addition to hosting your wonderful awards chatter podcast you also do a lot of prediction type things and so you have to do the short list long list etc and the emmys are always strange or stranger than the oscars because the oscars are preceded by three months of kind of lead up awards and that kind of gives you a template so as we head towards the Emmy nominations. Do you feel like the strangeness of this process has made it harder for you to predict, to read the tea leaves, or is it pretty much business as usual in that respect for you? I think it has in a way, just because
3: it's, there's a wild card here, which is that people have obviously been at home, which means for a lot of people, they've been consuming more TV, but it's hard to know what TV specifically that may favor if, if one or, you know, if if of any sort. So, you know, something that, that, that rolled out in the fall or the winter. Take for example Succession. That now feels unusually long ago, longer ago than it than it normally would. I think for a lot of people. Whereas something that just finished rolling out, you know, more recently, like an Ozark, may benefit from that because you can assume that uh, more people watched it and sooner than they might otherwise have because. They just had time. And so I I think that's one aspect that's made it a little bit different and harder to predict. Another thing, though, that I I know you're going to want to talk about, so maybe this is a place to bring it in, is that the TV Academy, for whatever reason, decided to tie the number this year of nominees in each category to the number of submissions for that category, which means that some of these categories are going to have more nominees, which makes sense in an era of peak TV. So, for instance, drama and comedy series are both going to have eight nominees, which is more than ever before. But then there are, oh, there's going to be a, a flip side to that, which is that for something like variety sketch series, where there are fewer submissions, you're actually going to have fewer nominees than you've had in the past. So it's it's in its own way, sort of a plan what the what the Oscars had for a few years with their best picture category, in the sense that we're gonna have a fluctuating number of nominees from from year to year, but for different reasons.
1: And how much does that infuriate you when you have to make, give predictions on things, and you're not even sure of how many nominees there are <laughs> in certain categories? You, you're exactly right
3: that that's been a frustration. I'm trying to literally count the number of titles that appear on the ballot in each category. And then, you know, the problem is that sometimes things get disqualified and, or they've moved categories or with the docu- with the documentary categories, they have something where it's like a unique distinction category, but you only wind up in that one. If you're not accepted, you're only eligible, uh, you know, for one documentary category, if you're not in another. So it's definitely, it's a lot of new, a lot of new this season.
0: So you've got an an increased number of nominees in select categories based on the amount of television that there is. But is there any other, are there any other significant rule changes that could affect the nominees that we'll see in some of the major categories?
3: Not a ton. There's been tweaks as there are each year. And there are things like, you know, that they'll deal with, with like kind of minutia, like hanging episodes and, and how that, which, which means like last year, for instance, The Handmaid's Tale, was the second most nominated drama series, even though it was being evaluated. It wasn't eligible for the drama series category or the acting, uh, except for guest acting categories, because you are you were only evaluating the episodes that had come out from season two after the voting period for the prior Emmys had ended. So, I mean, it's it's hard to even articulate. But the point is that In terms of this year, there's been not, you know, the the main change has certainly been just the, the quantity of nominees.
0: So the other thing that I wanted to bring up, too, is, you know, look, we're at a unique time in history. Obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, but we're also in the middle of a reckoning with Black Lives Matter front and center. And I'm wondering, you know, if the increased number of nominees in some of the major categories will help open the door to have increased nominees that are more inclusive and more diverse and maybe from from a lot of shows that, that fell under the radar or, or would have fallen under the radar in a different year.
3: I think that's certainly possible. I mean, it's it's not it's not going to make that less likely. And I think that while that may not have been their their driving motivation for doing this, I think that that will be a, a side benefit. That you know, maybe in the comedy series category with eight nominees, you get a show like Rami. Or you know, in the limited series category, that's actually one that that has not been expanded. But if you look at the big two drama series, you know, there's the potential that you. Could have, and I'll. I'll, If you know, we can get to what I'm actually predicting. But with eight slots, Killing Eve, Pose, The Outsider, Euphoria, Westworld, there are a number of shows with prominent, uh, you know, presence of people of color or plots around them that that could benefit from that. You know, that may not have may not have gotten in there. So uh, otherwise, so it's uh, and then with the acting categories, it again just depends on which acting category we're talking about because some of them have gotten. Quite a bit larger, and some of them have not. So there's things like that that are that are probably going to be affected by the category expansion.
1: Now, there was all last year was always going to be a sort of changing of the guard for the Emmys. We were always really and truly there was no way anything other than Game of Thrones was going to win drama series last year, and we thought it was going to be Veep that was going to win comedy, and then it ended up being Fleabag. But both shows are yeah. gone regardless. Right. So. It, does it feel as if this is a particularly topsy-turvy year? And if I asked you for sort of the categories that you feel most confident about, what would you say those are?
3: Well, I, first of all, will definitely say there's there's not nearly as many slam dunks as we felt there were last year. If you look at the drama series front runners, for instance, there's only one past winner that's even among the, the probable nominees, and that's The Handmaid's Tale. Otherwise, you're looking at a rookie show with The Morning Show from Apple TV+. Plus. You've got some perennial nominees like This Is Us and The Crown and uh, Better Call Saul, but they've also been perennial bridesmaids. And then probably at the top tier, you know, in a way as likely as anybody to emerge, I would think, would be Ozark from Netflix and Succession from HBO. So again, we're probably looking at an HBO, Netflix dynamic there. And then with comedy series, as you say, um, you know, we don't have a coronation there either. You've got, in this case, a past winner in the mix with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel from Amazon, but you've also got a bunch of shows that have been in the mix in the past, like Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Good Place, potentially Better Things, but also a real shot for you know, real openings for for shows that have had lower profiles to kind of penetrate. So Schitt's Creek, for instance, really has a shot for its last go around. And this is from the Pop TV network, but they're also, you know, benefiting, I think, I would argue, from a heavy presence on Netflix. So people have been catching up to that show throughout its run, and and I think it has a shot. So in terms of actual slam dunks, though, in any of the categories, you know, as I go through it, I wouldn't say limited series is a slam dunk for any one, but I think there's a, in terms of a, a win, but you can, you can bet that the nominees are going to include Watchmen, which from HBO is as timely a, a show as any, uh, unbelievable from Netflix, Mrs. America from FX. So you've got some almost certain nominees in that case, you go to TV movie, you know, not the deepest category, but I would think HBO and Netflix again are probably in the pole positions with "Bad Education" and "El Camino," the "Breaking Bad" movie. And then, in terms of acting, best actor, no, no clear front runner. It could be Jason Bateman winning for the first time as an actor. It could be Bob Odenkirk winning for the first time as an actor. It could be Billy Porter repeating. Although "Pose" is one of those shows that came out long ago and and uh, may have lost some of its mojo.
0: And should have been on right you know in june this it should have been airing just now it's new season but right right yeah.
3: so that, june, that July, may yeah. hurt it you know i'm I, I would say that the closest thing to a slam dunk on the drama side may be julia garner who was a bit of a surprise winner last year for Ozark, but now has to be considered i think the the front runner looking at the rest of the field so that's that's on the drama side on the comedy side it's really you know you look at the acting category you've got Eugene Levy from Schitt's Creek, Ted Danson from Good Place, n- n- you know, on and on. Not not past Emmy winners for these particular shows in the mix there. So that's a an interesting one. Comedy actress, past winner, Rachel Brosnahan for Marvelous Mrs. Maisel against a lot of very strong competition. Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek could have sort of a, a sentimental value there. She's not won before. People love the show. It's their last shot. You've got Issa Rae and on and on. It's interesting. And, and then if you want to get into the limited series categories, we can talk about that because those have been to me and I defer to our critic Dan not to, to confirm this, but I think those have been very strong this year.
1: Oh, it, it's, it's when you look at whichever the uh, category is that Shira Haas from Unorthodox is in. And I think mm-hmm. that's such a great performance. And you look at the actresses in that category and there are like 10 Oscar winning actresses exactly. who are on the ballot in that category. And you go, my God, that's a, it's <laughs> that is a really tough one.
3: Absolutely. I mean, just to just to, you know, speak to your point, that category the contenders include Kate Blanchett for Mrs. America, who to me seems like a slam dunk, as does Regina King from Watchmen, who I think has won, I believe it's three Emmys in the last five years. Like, they can't get enough of her. Um, so those two. Then you've got the duo from Unbelievable, Merritt Weaver and Caitlin Deaver. You've got the duo from Little Fires Everywhere, Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon. You've got Angenue Ellis, who I thought was off the charts in the Clark Sisters, which was one of the highest rated TV movies of the year. And then yes, Shira Haas for un- Unorthodox, which, you know, a Netflix show, you know, that's, that's helped its profile. And yet it, she still may struggle to get nominated. Daisy Edgar Jones from Normal People, which a lot of people I know just absolutely love. And, you know, we can go down the list, Ke- Helen Mirren and many other big names are are competing there. So that's in a way to me, that could be the best category of them all. I agree.
0: So now you've mentioned that the drama race will could likely come down to Netflix versus HBO, but I want to talk about that on the larger scale sure. because that to me has been the the big story worth following. Um, HBO edge Netflix last year among all wins. Lat, the year before that, 2018, they tied. When you're looking at these, you know, and the the breadth of content and the shows that are cutting through and where the Emmy voters are seem to be feeling, what is your sense of what that race is going to look like this year? Is it going to be Netflix just just towering over HBO or the opposite, or is it going to be a lot I don't closer?
3: think so. I think it, It you know, Netflix may end up ahead, but I don't think it's going to be a blowout in any sense, which, you know, people were saying last year was perhaps the last gasp for HBO because they were going to get a ton of nominations, obviously, for Game of Thrones and then also for Veep and, and you know, some of their limited series and, and things like that. But I'll tell you what, Succession has the potential to, to get a lot of nominations, as does Westworld. For HBO, even though it's sort of a very divisive show, it's managed in previous divisive seasons to get a <laughs> lot of nominations. Um, and Watchmen, got, which and, might
0: be the show of the year,
3: exactly. And then, not let's not forget season two of Big Little Lies, The Outsider. You know, euphoria, it's not clear where, if anywhere, that would actually show up, but that that has its fans. Curb your enthusiasm, uh, had a had a strong season, I think. Insecure. People seem to be finally really catching up to that. And and then, you know, with the limited series category, it's not just Watchmen for HBO, but they also have the plot against America. And I know this much is is true, which Mark Ruffalo should be very much in the mix for. T V movie, bad education. Um and and you know we can go on. So HBO has a lot in the a lot going for it, but but nobody has more programming than Netflix that seems to be somewhat in the mix. And uh, I mean, they're gonna their shows. You know, I think Ozark is the one show that has the potential to be uh, to do what Game of Thrones did last year, which was to get a nomination, at least one nomination for series directing, writing, and in all four acting categories in which it's eligible. So that'll be a lot of nominations for Ozark. The Crown is obviously a huge ensemble with, you know, potential for multiple directing and writing nominations. The one that we're, they're going to lose out a little bit on this year is Black Mirror, which is no longer able to sort of game the TV movie category that has been looped, link, you know, uh, lumped in with the, with the dramas. But Um, you know, we could stranger things. It's hard to see that, you know, that could happen dead to me. The Kaminsky method is sort of on the bubble. The politician, I would lean against it likely happening, but, um, you know, they're, they're, they've got, and then more than anywhere, actually in the limited series category, unbelievable Hollywood, unorthodox, the Eddie, the spy, I think that's the the gist of it there. So, they have a lot a lot in the mix as well.
0: Well, Scott, it's a <laughs> it's a crazy year. You have there's a lot going on. Wrapping up the segment, give us your one big nominee that you're really kind of hoping for or rooting for or or a big surprise.
3: I know you're asking for one. So, I, for the one, where I'm going to give you one, it's going to be what I'm really rooting for and I would say, in terms of what I would just love to see beyond anything that we've already talked about, I love a black lady sketch show, and I think that uh, that HBO program, which Robin Thede has been, you know, the force behind and the talent on screen and behind the screen, I I'll, I would actually throw her in as a, as a wild card potential acting nominee. But she that that show I'm really rooting for across the board.
0: And you can go back and listen to our July 25th. 2019 interview with robin thede she was our first ever showrunner spotlight awesome. apologies awesome. for the shameless plug there no, scott it's but great it's great thank you so much for for joining us with thank the you
1: thanks for having thanks, me thanks scott number two
0: up second major league baseball is officially back the abbreviated 60 game season is set to open thursday as we record this now it's thursday afternoon opening day is is only a few hours away and you've got teams playing before empty stadiums. They're pumping in crowd noise into these things. Dan, there's a lot going on as, as part of this effort to get playback.
1: It is so bizarre that they are pretending that this is a thing that they need to do when all signs point to it being a thing that they're not actually prepared to do. Uh, as, we're reco- <laughs> as we're recording Speaking this. Speaking of which. <laughs> <laughs> what now?
0: Speaking of which, Juan Soto, this just in. Nationals superstar Juan Soto has tested positive for COVID just before just hours before the first pitch before the Nationals and Yankees opener.
1: So that puts one of the game's young superstars on the shelf, probably for, I guess, two weeks. I feel like that's probably what they're doing. Uh, In addition, as of the moment at which we're recording this, I believe the Blue Jays don't have anywhere to play. Last I heard it was Camden Yards that they were looking at, but they keep getting turned away from places Uh, once again. I'm not sure why anyone thinks this is necessary or a good idea, but I am very much looking forward to seeing what it looks like, what it feels like. Uh, There was a great video that went around this morning from Fox Sports where they said that they're not going to be showing empty stadiums, that they're going to be CGI-ing a crowd and applause into their telecast. And that seems to me to be also vaguely bizarre, but Yay! I can think of
0: another word for that, but I'm not going to use it here. More of a phrase of words. Well, one is an expletive and the other one is stupid. So, anyway, um, you know, in, in other news, you know, as a Dodger fan, I'm super excited Mookie Betts just signed a, a 12-year, 365 million dollar deal that will keep him in Dodger blue through the 2032 season. Dan, look, Dodger fan in any like in a pre-COVID era, I would be doing backflips and I am not physically built to do a backflip. But in a COVID era, at a time when the Dodgers are not paying minor leaguers, when they're not when they've stopped paying support staff, when unemployment is at an all-time high, this is just so so silly to announce right now. And I get it, you know, he was a free agent at the end of the season and Dodger fans were so myself included, were afraid that he would never pay a me- play a meaningful game in Dodger blue, but it just like make there have there be a charitable component to this deal, you know, do you know, I watched the press conference with him announce like, "Hey, I'm giving back to minor leaguers. We're going to do this whole thing through the Dodger Foundation to make sure employees get paid through the rest of the season." It's just like I can't. I just can't.
1: And and Mookie is a player who as a rule has a pretty good sense of optics on those things, and I assume that he is doing good work with that money as well in addition to
0: I hope, but also Say that during the press conference,
1: but I, I think that the point is trying to make everyone believe that, <laughs> that there's going to be a base that there's going to oh, be a baseball season this usual. year.
0: It's like baseball and the broadcast networks who have set the, their business as usual fall quote unquote fall schedules are are like living in the, in the same like head in the sand universe. Like I, I just. And
1: a, again, as of, you know, not only do the Blue Jays not have a place to play baseball, again, probably Camden Yards, but we'll see. But as of the time that we're recording it, no one even seems to know how much the postseason is even going to be there. You know, how many teams are going to be involved? It is. God, I keep using the word bizarre. You keep wanting to use a different word. Uh, but this is still.
0: <laughs> it's just it's so to me, you know, my, you will not. I, I You know, look anyone who knows me or who know, who listens to the show or even looks at my Twitter bio knows that I am a massive baseball fan. It was baseball. The sport was literally, I fell in love with it at age 12 and I have loved it ever since. I consider it my first true love. And even though it sometimes doesn't love me back as a Dodger fan, but to me, you know, the the fact, and I've said this, I think on the show before, just the fact that they're playing right now, it's, they're prioritizing the the financials, you know, the fact that these players need want to get paid, and the fact that these TV networks with these huge broadcast deals need to get content so that they can fulfill those ad dollars and and keep those deals intact. You're playing for the wrong reasons. You're you're playing and you're putting financial you're you're, you're putting money over well uh, over the players and their families' health and well being and the stadium employees, et cetera. And it just feels completely backwards.
1: It does, and so everyone who's like, "Yay, at least I can't wait to watch baseball again." I mean, that's fine, and and I'm looking forward to watching the games tonight and this weekend. But it is, it's not the time, and yeah. and also they're, like they're, they're the extra it.
0: inning rule where you like play, you start the innings with a runner at second base, and there's a DH in the National League. It just
1: it's be- <sighs> it's baseball in quotation marks, and that's what we're going to have to deal with. And I appreciate you tying it, it, this all into the broadcast deals, because that at least justifies why we're having this conversation. But yes, basically, baseball will give Fox and a couple cable networks a promotional platform that they wouldn't have had otherwise, and an advertising platform they wouldn't have had otherwise. And therefore, it is of value to our industry. And that is good. We We like our industry to be working. But Yeah, we're we're skeptical. And I'm sure we will talk more about our skepticism as we go forward.
0: For sure. That said, Dan, have you did you watch any of the summer camp games?
1: No, I I skipped the summer camp games, but I will I will watch the real thing. There's because, again, even the real thing is in quotation marks. So fake games ahead of a fake season. That's the bridge too far for me. Fake games within the season. I can watch.
0: Yeah, our, our friend of the five, Matt Bellany, uh, texted me the other night and sent me a photo of a, the cardboard cutout of Mary Hart at Dodger Stadium. And that's kind of what, like, tipped me over the edge of just like, oh, come on. But anyway, I digress. Dan, let, let's move on. Let's keep this segment short.
2: Number
1: three. Number
0: three. Up third, it's time for another mailbag segment. Reminder that if you have questions that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss, please drop us an email at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. Up first, Dan, this one's for you. Joseph in Chicago emails and says, do you think that Survivor delaying production on their next season will start a cascade of reality show delays and cancellations?
1: The honest answer appears that it's going to be the opposite. It appears, as we already said in our opening segment, Big Brother All-Stars is is coming. Uh, Love Island is coming. Apparently, they are beginning production on The Bachelor or Bachelorette, whichever one this cycle happens to be. So it's all coming down to which of the productions have more and less logistical hurdles. the The thing about Big Brother is that well, it is a bubble that that much is what the show literally is. So that's a step in the right direction for convenience. And it's also a show where there are cameras all around the house and they're just there. And so Big Brother almost seems like the perfect show under these circumstances. It's basically 20 people in quarantine. So I think Everyone is gonna be finding their ways of doing this. And if Survivor happens to have more logistical hurdles to clear, and you can imagine why it would, it's in a foreign country, it requires travel, it isn't a show where you can set up the cameras, uh, set them on remote control and do it all from a booth. They have to have the production crew there. They have to have all of the various support staff there. You have to have the doctor on call. You have to have all of those things there. So it's a bigger I don't want to say it's a bigger production than Big Brother because they're both big in their own ways. But Survivor just has more pieces, perhaps, or it has different pieces. So I I think that more than anything, we're going to see these reality shows trying to get back to going because I don't know, for whatever reason, they're going to be easier to produce in many or most cases than trying to figure out what states and countries and whatever are allowing people to shoot scripted programming and how many hours a day you can do it and all of the things that we've talked about over and over and over again and that we will continue to talk about because we don't know the answers to any of them.
0: Yeah, I mean, Uh, just to interject here, as you said, with scripted, you know, the guilds still have to figure out the universal Way to that the new protocols that they have to put in place for scripted to get back on track, and that's still not that still hasn't happened, and that's not just for for LA, that's just in general. Um, you know, we you know, there's our colleague Bryn Sandberg reported uh, this week that Universal TV shows and Warner Brothers shows have been pushed back in terms of the production start date. That's looking like the end of August, mid September now. So if production is not going to you know going to start until. August or September, then the idea of premiering anything in, in the fourth quarter seems increasingly far, far fetched. But, you know, I, I I do think that reality has a bigger chance of coming back. And if you think about it, Fox's fall schedule, yes, they've got football, which is another story entirely, but they also slotted the Masked Singer, the new season to debut in sometime whenever they're going to launch their schedule which we haven't been told yet but think about it mask singer the literally masks are built into the premise of the show you've got all the talent literally already in giant ridiculous masks and they'll probably wear a mask underneath that i would imagine or have some kind of you know special thing under there to keep them safe and it just seems like reality shows have a safer way back first before scripted does because there's so many other variables with scripted
1: Plus, when it comes to Masked Singer, you hear so many of these producers having conversations about how they don't want to go back without a vaccine. But we already know Jenny McCarthy doesn't care about that. So bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) Our next question. Axel emails that he enjoys married at First Sight Australia, currently airing on Lifetime, and wonders why they don't show more reality shows from foreign countries, especially in these COVID times. He writes, I've noticed and you've discussed that this happens occasionally now with Canadian shows making their way to broadcast, but I'm surprised that we're not inundated with foreign reality right now because there's so much of it. Netflix has some foreign shows, but not a ton. So my question is for streamers, cable and broadcast."
0: Well, I think in short, the answer is it's licensing. You know, how much do you want to pay to license a show that you don't own? And that's what, you know, with with Lifetime, Married at First Sight is one of their own shows. So just they've already licensed and sold that format around the world. So they already own, I would imagine, a significant portion of it. Probably it's a co-pro with uh, with local producers in Australia, um, you know, and the the Netflix observation is very astute. You know, they obviously have some foreign shows, but that's again, Netflix is a global distribution platform. They don't license and sell their shows to other territories because they do it themselves. So that's why there's a lot of, of foreign content on, on Netflix. But it is a great idea to do to license some of the the foreign unscripted shows on, on broadcast. And I think I, I would be really curious to see like if CBS there's so much Love Island content you know maybe they if if their work on season two can't happen maybe there's a way that they could air some of the other seasons but then those are I think last I checked those were streaming on Hulu which is a different content agreement and you know the, the bottom line of why you why you do see or don't see something on on any specific platform or network is always will boil down to money just like MLB but. It's, it's a question of, you know, are these Canadian shows that the scripted shows that are airing on broadcast, a lot of those are inexpensive to, to pick up. So you can get an entire season of a 10 episode show that's been produced, you know, in, in another territory for less than what it costs to probably film one episode of a broadcast drama. So unscripted is a whole other, other thing. And I think it's a great idea that I would love to see. And another great idea that one of our colleagues floated on Twitter was, seeing some of these unaired pilots, all the busted pilots airing at some point, because, you know, these networks spend millions on those too. So
1: they do. I, I guess the question in most of those cases is going to be what the advantage to the network would be in airing any of those busted pilots. I understand completely what the advantage to us as an audience would be. We would like to see them. That's why that would be an advantage to us. But to the network, if you air a busted pilot from five years ago, and it does well, what have you accomplished? What What do you do next? Because, say, for example, you air, I don't know, the Fargo pilot with Edie Falco and Edie Falco already has a job somewhere else doing other things. Well, it's not like it becomes what the purpose of the pilot was supposed to be, which was to launch an ongoing series. It just becomes something that, you know, you you aired and then you couldn't do anything with it. So it does it doesn't become an actual midterm or long term Money maker, and I don't know what the audience would be. And then with a lot of these reality yeah. shows in the yeah, international the,
0: the, just to go back on the pilot front, those deals expire when they pass on a pilot. So you'd have to either get their consent or pay them or do something. So. But yeah.
1: Yeah. And how much and how much would you pay somebody to air one time their pilot that you didn't pick up? It's it, to me, from the network perspective, there's no advantage to it. And and the fact that a bunch of people on Twitter think it would be cool. I am right there with you. I would love to see a lot of those pilots, but Twitter is not America. Most people don't have a clue and we don't have the infrastructure back where there used to be anthology shows that showed kind of busted pilots under different names. Uh, it just doesn't exist anymore. And so also with a lot of these reality formats. Part part of the problem is that CBS does better with a lot of CBS's things. So if you're CBS, you know, airing a new episode of Love Island in America, those episodes last summer drew under two point five million dollars viewers rather the entire time. So there's not much reason for you to want to air Love Island UK. It wouldn't do better. And then. To commit to airing Survivor Australia, for example, I hear great things about Survivor Australia. People say it is the best of the survivors, except for people who say Survivor Israel or Survivor something else is the best. But if you're CBS, what is really the ratings upside to a lot of those things? For audiences, there's a definite upside. But for the networks, it, it seems like a less advantageous situation.
0: Right. But we're also approaching a point where they may not have much choice.
1: So. Oh, it, as desperation goes from casual desperation to desperate desperation, we will definitely see other things. Uh, let's see our next question, and I will let you handle this because it will probably be a fairly short answer. Ted emails, I keep seeing clickbait uh, headlines about Big Bang Theory coming back. It all looked dubious. So I haven't clicked on any of the bait. So I wanted to ask you, what's the deal? Is Big Bang Theory coming back?
0: In short, I would be stunned if it was going to come back. First of all, Jim Parsons starred on that show, won, won Emmys for that show. There was a, allegedly a multiple season renewal on the table for at least one season, possibly more. I've heard maybe two. And Jim basically made this decision and said, I don't want to do this anymore. And Chuck Lorre, who cr- who co-created the show, said, this is not the show. We are not doing the show without all of the core cast. And the show ended. And Jim Parsons was open. There's an interview that I did with him uh, that's on the on the website from back in May when the series finale aired, which feels like 7,000 lifetimes ago. And he, he basically said I, he felt like he's done everything that he wanted to do with that character and he was ready to move on. And he has. He did Hollywood. I think he's doing a couple other things, you know, but he's also producing a great show on Netflix called Special, which you should definitely check out. And, you know. In a more practical sense, Maya Bialik has a Fox comedy that she's already committed to, and she's a, and Parsons is exact producing that via his deal with Big Bang Theory producers Warner Brothers Television, and that was in a really expensive show. CBS didn't own it; they had to pay a steep licensing fee. Yes, it it produced mega ratings. It still signed off as TV's number one scripted comedy, and it you know ended its run as as TV's longest running multicam in history. But also, that's a show that filmed in front of a live studio audience. There's no way that's coming back. Like, plus, you know, Jim's making money hand over fist on young Sheldon, which is renewed for a couple more seasons. Yeah, he, he's, he's producing and he's going to take select acting things as he sees fit. So no, in short, no, that's not coming back.
1: <laughs> Although okay, I love it too. Uh, so bazinga. Our last question this week. This question comes from friend of the five, Alan Seppenwall, who inquires. Usually, I understand why old uh, shows wind up on certain streaming services, like your beloved friends being on HBO Max rather than Peacock because Warner Brothers produced it back in the day. But how on earth did Everybody Loves Raymond, which was produced by Worldwide Pants, uh, Wears Lunch and HBO Independent Productions, wind up on Peacock and only on Peacock? Also, would you anticipate that the content arms race of the streaming wars might finally result in the streaming debuts of long-missing shows like Homicide, Northern Exposure... And ed? Or are the ownerships just too tangled in some cases that if they haven't been able to stream by now, they won't be.
0: I'll i ta- I'll tackle the first part and I'll try and do so quickly. So why shows that aren't owned by Peacock and NBC Universal are streaming on Peacock? Peacock just launched. They're following the same trajectory that every other streaming service, including Netflix, did when they launched, which is they need content. And they're starting with library. So they aren't so a lot of their budget for original and and scripted is being focused on building up the platform with with big series with numbers of episodes to kind of bulk it up. So yes, they have stuff that they own like Parks and Recreation. They're going to have The Office, which they're buying back from Netflix next year. Um, SNL, all of the Dick Wolf shows are a big massive chunk of them. But then they're also spending money making these content library deals with the likes of Viacom, CBS, and basically trying to to populate this platform so that it becomes something that's that that in the streaming wars is like yeah i gotta have that too you know so yeah that's that's a big reason why you're seeing shows like yellowstone which is a a paramount network show that that is owned um by viacom cbs that allegedly is one of the, the the most streamed library shows on peacock and they don't own that so it does great things because it's helping to to boost the the new season of Yellowstone on Paramount Network, and it's helping Peacock have more uh, subscribers or even the people who are coming to the free platform spend more time on that service. But yeah, that that's the strategy. And, you know, when you leading up to the peacock launch what was what i found interesting were were those deals the viacom cbs deals where they got a lot of shows like everybody hates chris and a lot of movies including the godfather and then they did a huge deal for a lot of unscripted shows from a e which they also don't own so it's basically just populating the service with content until some of the other licensing deals for their own shows run out and they can have them exclusively back on their platform Um, And it's also worth noting that that a lot of those Viacom CBS shows are still on CBS All Access. So it's a double win. Peacock gets the content. CBS All Access still keeps their own content and monetizes their library at a time when we don't know what the future of CBS is going to be as part of its planned rebranding and expansion. So as for the second part um, of Alan's question, it's a great question. Why are some of these hits like Homicide and Northern Exposure and Ed not streaming anywhere? I it's obviously everything is a case by case scenario and maybe some of its ownership, but what I've historically found why some of these shows don't stream music rights. A lot of it is licensing and and stuff like that. And some of that stuff is so complicated or it takes a lot of time to, to go through individual music rights for every episode. And, you know, it's a lot of work and sometimes people don't necessarily want to do it. So, and obviously I don't know that that's the case on all three of these shows, but that would be my educated guess. Moving on up next is our showrunner spotlight segment with programming at a lull because of the production shutdown. We're doing something a little different this week and putting the spotlight on a hidden gem that we missed when it originally launched.
1: Number four. This week, we're welcoming Crystal Moselle, creator and director of HBO's terrific skateboarding comedy Betty. Moselle made her name with the acclaimed Sundance documentary The Wolf Pack. Since meeting the female skateboarding collective dubbed Skate Kitchen, she has worked with the young skaters on the short The One Day, the feature Skate Kitchen, available on Hulu, and now on Betty, which premiered on HBO in May and has already been renewed for a second season. Welcome, Crystal.
2: Thanks for having me. So
1: this is now the third project you've worked on with this collective of female skateboarders, starting with the short That One Day, followed by the feature Skate Kitchen. And they're all connected in theme and tone and also in the names of the characters, but not really in narrative. So how do you look at, your, at the way these three projects fit together in your own mind?
2: Well, I, I mean, it's the same young girls or young women, and it's the same world. So the world is what I fell in love with. I met the girls on the subway and started hanging out with them. And I bonded a lot with Rochelle Vinberg, who plays Camille. And her and I, you know, that's where the, the short came from. And, and Nina, her friend, um, helped me, like, with casting of the rest of the girls. And so I just, like, you know, there was so much to discover with, with each one of them. I was, you know, it just felt like it's this project that could never end because there's <laughs> all of these great stories that need to be told right now and told through their point of view is really special, I think.
0: Well, one of the things that I really enjoy a lot is just the show and that the, the larger sense of, of female empowerment and freedom that, that comes with it, and perhaps that comes with the fact that I watch this while while we're practicing strict quarantine here. But uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, when you set out to do this, how much of this, you know, you know, female skateboarders have always been kind of, you know, looked looked the other way or never gotten their due. I mean. How much of of that was top of mind when you set out to tell a larger story for uh, an audience like HBO?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Nino did this TED Talk and at the end of the TED Talk, she talks about, you know, she wants to inspire people to do things that they think they normally can't do. And I think that there's these sort of um, stigmas, the things that you don't even realize, like when you're going through life, like, you know, oh, I'm not going to play football because that's for boys, things like that. It's so simple. It's very simple. And it's really just about like reframing your mind and being like, oh, okay, I actually can do these things. I um, can, you know, gain a new perspective. And I wanted, you know, this show to almost be like a microcosm for this bigger idea that, you know, we can set out to do things that we feel like doing that, that, that interest us or that empower us. Um, and so like, I think that there's like so much room to tell so many of these stories. And, you know, when we made the film, a lot of the, a lot of the reaction was, Oh, I just want to live in their world forever. And true. APO true for me too. was perfect partner to continue that with because, you know, we're, you know, we're writing season two right now, so we're continuing it.
1: Well, most of the stars here, they're not actors. They're skateboarders. They're just people who were living their lives online to some degree. How have you seen them grow and evolve as actors over the three projects you've done with them? And how has that impacted the stories you've wanted to tell about them and been able to tell?
2: Uh, it's, been inc- it's been incredible. I mean, not only have they grown, but I've grown as a director. Like when I First worked with them. I never worked with actors, really. Like I'd I'd done commercials and stuff, but not in like a narrative piece that was you know short film. And so like I had to learn a lot as well. But they're so open, and I think that's like the first step to working with a non-actor is that as long as they're open, you can put the circumstances in front of them and push them into you know a performance that's believable. So, uh, you know, it's not easy. There's like, we did so much rehearsal and I like to stay incredibly connected with them during the process of writing. And, you know, they're, they're all consultants on the show. So they, they come in and they, um, you know, give it like it is. And we, uh, you know, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting process. <laughs> it's, an, it's an abnormal process from what I understand speaking to writers, they're like, what? Your tell you what works and doesn't work. Yes, they do. Because it's so incredibly important for me that we stay authentic to their worlds, like where we, it really feels like you're stepping into their, their, you know, downtown New York city, like perspective of New York city is a living room. It's, you know, this total character in their lives. It's that, you know, is a part of, you know, their subculture.
1: Well, there's the strong there's the strong impression that this is kind of improvised or it feels as if it's fly on the wall and unscripted. But how strictly would you say what's actually in the show is on a page at some point?
2: A lot of it's on the page, but then the girls, you know, I'll be like, now do your thing. And then they do an improv version of the scene. And then we kind of mix the two together because the way we shoot it, we shoot it like very documentary, like where the camera isn't composed, the camera's floating and finding moments. And that's like, for me, that's how I want things to feel like you're discovering their world for the first time. So there is a lot, I mean, there's, there's, I, I personally think the greatest moments of the show were improv. Um, I really believe in their improv and what they bring to the table. And I think they have great ideas and they're good. They like they know they know how like, they know the rhythm of it and they know how to stick to the the pillars or beats of the scene. So they know the story that is being told.
0: So uh, do they come in perhaps? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, you're writing season two right now. How often, like how early in the process do they come in to maybe help, you know, shed light on a particular storyline or maybe inspire one?
2: They they come in in the beginning. I have conversations with them first about what I think, you know, the season should be. And then we talk about it and then they will come in and meet the room. And, you know, we've been doing it all over Zoom, which is hectic. (laughs) uh but it works and and you know a couple of them just like want to like hang out and listen and and hear us break story and it's very free the way that they're involved and um to me it's very important that they can be a part of the process because i think that they bring so much to it
1: have their aspirations kind of in a Bigger picture, way changed since you first got to know them. I can't imagine that when you first got to know them, their dream was to someday become stars of Sundance films, short films, and HBO half-hour series. What did they? What were their dreams then, and what are their dreams now?
2: <laughs> I mean, yes, I think definitely it's shifted a few of them. But like you know, like Ajani still is in art school at Cal Arts in California, making her art. Like she's an artist she she'll do acting on the side. Like that's like her side gig. I told her, I'm like, she's like, I'm not an actor. And I'm like, yeah, you're not an actor. You're a comedian. She's like, yeah, I like that better. But, uh, (laughs) they, they do their thing. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, Rochelle, like she found this old notebook from when she was six years old. And she said that she wanted to try acting when she was six but maybe every six-year-old says that I don't know (laughs) but she she I think you know a few of them really are into it and like do the acting classes and some of them are just you know down for the project that we're doing so but it's definitely pushed them into a new territory with their um you know what they're doing in their lives and they're doing so many other things like you know they they DJ and make videos and art and some of the model and teach kids to skateboard. They're very humble, which I, it, it really uh, makes me feel relaxed <laughs> knowing that because, you know, you, you know, we you know what happens with, what some sort of fame to people. <laughs> Indeed. Um perhaps
0: not great to play off of that question, but you know, are they getting more respect in the skateboarding community or are they have they turned into mini celebrities in that in that circuit in that world?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, everybody knows who they are, but the skate world is just so low key that nobody like young women, I mean, if anything it's inspired young woman. I mean, this is a tipping point for women in skateboarding. And I firmly believe that the skate kitchen was a big part of that. And because when I first met them, there was like five skateboarding girls downtown that like Nina knew. And like, there weren't that many people. It was like hard to find women who skate. Now it's like, they're everywhere. So I think if anything, it, it just inspired more women to skate as far as like, They're them being known. Yeah, they're known, but like, you know, the skateboarding world is still very male dominated, and they're not going to give mine to some like girls who are in like a TV show acting who aren't pro skaters. You know what I mean? Like, they're not pros.
1: (laughs) But it's funny because obviously skateboarding is a pastime, hobby, sport, however you want to put it, that has blown up because of people's abilities to film themselves and to put themselves on film and video and get that out there. Um, When people see them, do they think of them as just being the women who are sort of followed by this camera crew? Because I assume lots of people are filming things constantly. Or do they actually go, "Okay, we watched the episode of Betty last week or we watched Skate Kitchen on Hulu? Like, is there an awareness that they're fictional stars almost to some degree?
2: Yes. Yes. But you know, it's, it's very blurry <laughs> fiction and nonfiction of this, which is confusing. And another reason why we didn't name the TV show skate kitchen, because I think that they started to lose their identity of like their, like their crew that they started. Cause they started a crew called skate kitchen and then we named the movie skate kitchen <laughs> and then, it, and then the movie kind of all of a sudden took over skate kitchen. So I think it's good that Betty is a little bit different. Um, it strays away from their life more than like the movie and the short and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 not your average project that way, I guess. <laughs> um,
0: you know, as we mentioned before, the we started recording, Dan and I were both. And we're afraid to admit this uh, late to the show, but we all wound up, we, we each wound up watching it in in one day in a single sitting um, on HBO Max. Have you heard of a big boost of interest since the show became available on streaming, especially since it's so I- it instantly bingeable?
2: Oh, on HBO Max? Yeah. Yes. Yes. When HBO Max, when it came out like the first day, like it, we got like a whole like um, push like for the show. So it was Yes. Yeah, for sure. I think that it opened things up a lot more, which is great.
0: Debuting this show in quarantine, I would imagine the, re- the reaction that you're getting is a little bit different than, than had, than maybe perhaps when the feature debuted. But what are you hearing from people finding it? I mean, are people going out and actually taking up skateboarding or, you know, how, how has the quarantine changed how you're hearing feedback about the show?
2: I think that like the number one thing on Twitter that I've seen is girls being like, I just watched Betty and I just bought a skateboard like constantly. And, you know, young women being inspired and uh, yeah, it's a lot of, I think it's been really strong and like the queer space and it's, no, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I feel super like blessed that, The show came out when it did because I think it was really good timing for everything that's happening in the world and being in quarantine and just being able to, I don't know, because I know that there's something very freeing about these girls that I, you know, that, that the reason why I'm still working with them, you know, like they, their world is inspiring to me. And I wanted just to be able to show that to other people.
0: Yeah. I, I admit that I, I called my mom to see if she still had my childhood skateboard after I watched the show. So she sadly didn't, but, um, <laughs> that's another story. Um, but I, I do want to talk about, uh, the, the queer storylines in, in the show. I mean, it, it's, it's just there. Um, there's no coming out. There's no anything. It's just inherent to who, to who these characters are. You mentioned you've heard a little bit from a uh, feedback from the queer community, but what has inspired you about those storylines?
2: Um, I mean, I try to stay away from like cliches and the best way to do that is just to like talk to people about their own stories. So I think, that, you know, when I, I met them, I met, you know, when I met them, Nina had just come out of the closet right when I met her, when she was like 18 years old or maybe she was, she might've been 17, 17 or 18. And I just... I don't know. I I I think that I just want to show the the environment of women that feel free to be who they are. Yeah, it's it's funny cuz for me I'm just such a documentary filmmaker. It's really just about where they're at and it's inspired by where they're at. Like I'm not ever really trying to like push anything or you know try to tell a story or whatever. Um, I think for season two, we're definitely doing that more, which is great because I'm, for me, I'm just like, I just want to listen to people's stories and translate that. So, but there's a lot of like, there's, you know, some great young women in the writer's room who um, can really identify with the, the woman in the show. So, yeah.
1: But what have you learned about how much of a plot engine this requires to move forward and how much it can just be free flowing, you know, kind of a chill series.
2: Well, from, well, from Twitter, I, (laughs) I learned that people love love a twist. They love an unexpected moment. And, you know, and, and I think that these young women, they're, they're constantly moving and meeting new people and things are happening. So there's a lot of room for that. So, I know that like, I mean, I personally like learned a lot from season one and I'm implementing a lot of the feedback and what I've learned into season two. So I hope that, you know, I think that probably should have started the story a little bit sooner. And like as, as a binge, I think it's great, but as an episode by episode, maybe, maybe the story should have come up a little bit sooner into into episode one. Because I just love – for me, I just love – I could sit and, like, watch these girls hang out for, like, the rest of my life. Like, they're so <laughs> great and funny and fun and stuff, but I, I'm – maybe not – not everybody's like me, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, When you went in for the
0: the pitch with this, this is only six, it's six a half hour episodes. But when you pitched HBO, was it was that always part of the plan to have it be this kind of an abbreviated? It's it's it feels almost like the British style where it's just a short episode count and then the season's over. Was that always part of the initial plan? And as you're prepping season two, are you looking to grow that?
2: I think because we just had very little time. (laughs) It all happened really fast because I'm always like, the girls are in college. We got to make sure they stay in school. And then, um, so everything just, I think like my agents, like that's the fastest I've ever seen a show get picked up in my life. But I have a sense of urgency with things I do. I mean, I, it wasn't my idea to make a TV show. They came to me. So I wasn't like, I wasn't like out pitching it or anything, but I was just like, if we're going to do this though, like I, we got to do this like for next summer, And so it was kind of like it just I don't know, it just made sense to make six episodes. I think that we're probably going to do six again. It's, um, you know, I I think that it's what we all can handle working (laughs) together. But but
1: when you say you could just hang out with these girls forever, you know, half hour does seem like a very structured length of time. Are there cuts of each episode that are two hours long or really never end?
2: (laughs) No, there's like, you know, I think initially like the cuts would be like 42 minutes or something. And then we had to like cut like a bunch down. But yeah, I don't I mean, it's a half hour comedy, I guess. So that's like what <laughs> that's what you have to do unless it's a drama. So it's I mean, which is a new space for me as well, because I never considered my work comedy, comedy like at all. Um, I don't I feel like I don't even understand comedy so much. Um, but but there's something I think there's something very playful about my work and and fun and freeing and youthful so it works into the comedy space it's not like over dramatic like other shows that we know about (laughs) majors that are over dramatic that I like but isn't this one um and I don't know I guess it just made sense and I think it's it it keeps it simple and a lot of great movement and um yeah well, you
1: directed every episode of this. Um, going from the short film to the feature to this, have you had to become more of a kind of legitimate production? Were you more guerrilla-focused at the beginning? And have you now had to become a master of permits and, and shutting down streets and a lot of things that you didn't know about when you started?
2: Yeah, I mean, we definitely, like, it was it was a subtle change from each project to the next. Like, the first one definitely... I mean, we still treated it like it was a feature film. Like we shot it in three, sorry, a scripted film. We shot it in three days. It was, everything was like scheduled and everything. So it wasn't as much as like people would think, but like definitely, I mean, we, we permitted on the movie, we permitted streets on the movie, you know, we, we played by the rules, of course, (laughs) especially like, I mean, for safety, it's very important because we're, you know, there's these athletes, which like we've. It's been really great. Like, nobody's gotten hurt at all. And um, and then for the TV show, yeah. Like, I mean, we for the opening shot, we had to, to shut down Madison Avenue for five blocks. Like, we couldn't just, like, have her skating in the street. Like, that's just not wh- how you can roll for safety. But it's fine. Like, I actually enjoyed that stuff. Like, I think that as a filmmaker, I'm more interested in scripted now than I was before. So... I'm happy to like have you know a million people setting up a situation for a girl just to skate down the street for one block. Fine, why not?
0: <laughs> that sounds pretty amazing, though. Um, but I, I, I am curious about season two. So you mentioned that you are already in the writers' room working on that. Is that set? You know how how are you incorporating COVID into that, or are you?
2: Yes, we are incorporating COVID into season two because this is their world now. But it's you know it affects them, but it doesn't affect their lives, like their stories and stuff. So, I mean, the story itself isn't completely based off of like COVID coming into the into the world, but it definitely has a part in it. And I don't know, we're just we're just taking it as it is, and everybody's still living their lives. So, and New York's doing pretty well. Like we just went into phase four, so we're gonna be shooting hopefully at the end of September.
1: But even still that, you know, New York is doing well now, but there was a month where New York was the hotspot of the world and where it was this horrible nightmare. Is is that the sort of thing that's kind of in the background or is it something that anyone might acknowledge at any point that there were these, you know, a month and a half where people were dying by the thousands?
2: Yes. No, it's it's going to be a part. Yeah, it's all going to be a part of the story and it's going to interweave and um, work in for sure yeah
0: you know with production resuming um what kind of safety guidelines have you talked about for the show since it's primarily set outdoors i mean we've heard that that you know there's kind of dueling theories that you know things that are shooting outdoors it's going to be easier to do but then it's also going to be harder because you can't close things off and uh you know how how are you shooting is i guess is my larger question
2: yeah i mean the, the idea actually isn't completely outdoors there's a lot of indoors in this season but there's so many crazy rules. Like you have to work in pods. You, um, everybody has to wear masks. Um, so like the, all the, like a lot of all the backgrounds will have to wear masks. It's complicated. We're figuring it out. I'm, I, <laughs> we don't, yeah, I, I don't even want to say anything because I feel like my producers and like, what are you? Doing? Yeah.
0: And everything sounds like a work in progress too. So
2: it is, we don't know what's going on. I mean, we don't even know if we can even shoot, but we're, we're like, we're like, we're going to shoot. Let's do this. Moving ahead.
0: <laughs> uh, do you have an episode count? Will that really grow from six?
2: Um, I think it's going to still be six.
0: That's me being greedy. I want more. I, like like,
2: <laughs> I know I do too. It's
0: just... But in a larger sense, do you have multiple seasons of this? Like, have you had that conversations with HBO of saying this is a show that can go five, eight, ten seasons?
2: I don't know yet. I know that we got a second season, so... <laughs> I'm new to this, guys. I don't know. But I've asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see two, but do you see three? I think after after the second season, like, you renegotiate the contract. And then, then I think you, like, sign up for more or whatever. So hopefully everybody loves it.
1: Now, the story with this project and also with uh, your documentary Wolfpack before this was that you kind of, quote unquote, discovered the subjects during your own personal kind of navigation of New York City. Being sort of a person who finds her stories out in the world, what have the last four months been like for you and your creative process?
2: It's been wonderful. (laughs) It's been so nice. So like the first, the first two months of staying in the house was amazing. Let me tell you, I have been on the road and like going, going, going for five years straight since the Wolfpack came out. So it was, it was really nice to be able to just settle, relax, really just, um, you know, I was, was doing some writing on a new project that I'm doing. I was doing some watercolors. I was doing some dancing. I adopted a cat. <laughs> Lots of things happening over here.
0: You know, you and you, you mentioned, too, that you, you're much more interested in scripted after having done Betty. But um, beyond this this world, have you thought about an, an overall deal or developing other projects with HBO?
2: Um, sure. Why not? As, are, are there things that you that you're working on? Yeah, I do. I, I have a I I have. Um, A script that I'm writing with my father about his time working at a mental hospital in the 70s. Um, I have another script that would be great for a series that I think that I would eventually pitch to HBO. I actually randomly pitched it to Francesca like five years ago. She loved it. Let's see if we can pick back up with that. But that's like something that kind of I needed to give some more time for that story. I'm learning so much and I'm just the type of person that's like I kind of just go with what's happening at that moment, and then I have these like bigger ideas yeah there's there's i i'm I'm potentially doing this other pilot with a twenty four and this really wonderful writer, and I don't know just doing stuff i'm doing I'm doing a documentary on a robot, her name is Sophia, I'm doing that with Showtime. <laughs>
1: tell us a tiny bit more about that robot
2: (laughs) well there's this robot her name is Sophia, and she uh got famous because saudi arabia gave her a citizenship but it's not actually it's an honorary citizenship (laughs) and that created quite a um stir amidst (laughs) the world um that's how i found her and then i i i contacted the guy who made her and she's like this incredible humanoid robot that i've been documenting this man david hansen and his process of making this robot for the last two years so that's another thing i'm doing with my co-director john casby and so i will never forget about documentaries I, i i love i love um filming people's lives and Uh, character-driven stories, my thing.
1: Have you been able to hear any stories about additional attention to the original feature, to the Skate Kitchen feature, which has been on Hulu the whole time? Has Hulu kind of let you know, oh, by the way, there's been this little spike of interest in the past couple months as a result of this?
2: Yes. I mean, they haven't let me know, but I see (laughs) see people talk about it a lot on Twitter, because (laughs) now I'm always checking Twitter to see what people are saying about our show um and they they love yeah like I think everybody's confused because they're like wait but is it a wait is it before or after and then, <laughs> and then I'm like same world same people different different story um yeah and I think that like also like the movie came out in quite a like several different countries in Europe recently at the same time as the TV show so it's cool it kind of like they helped each other out a little bit
0: Excellent. Well, we always do like to close these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying?
2: I just watched this movie called Black Cat, White Cat. America, Costa Rica.
1: Ah, Yes. Yes. But have you not been have you been watching any TV over the quarantine?
2: Yes. I watched that show Devs. I watched I Know This Much Is True. Tore me apart. I mean, in total honesty, I'm more of a movie person, but I like, I like stuff. I like watching things that like I would never make personally. Like, I'm not into short comedy things at all. Like, I'm not like a lot of. There's a lot of these like short comedy shows that are like it's brilliant. You have to watch it, and then I like can only get through like one episode, and then I'm like, I want to watch something serious and and scientific. <laughs> I like tops. Yeah.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it, Crystal.
2: Absolutely.
0: Thanks, Crystal. Congratulations. Betty is available to watch in its entirety on HBO On Demand or HBO Max. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's new launches are Winona Earp, which makes its long awaited return to sci fi after escaping cancellation because the Producers of the show ran out of money. The final season of Room 104 launches on HBO. Netflix bows Last Chance You, And Epix has its Greg Berlanti-produced miniseries Helter Skelter. Dan, slim Pickens this week. What you got?
1: It's... I don't know if it's slim Pickens so much as it's you know it's already for you Pickens. So if you are a fan of Winona Earp, and definitely there are those fans out there, yay for you. I personally have somewhat stalled out towards the end of the first season, which means absolutely nothing negatively about the show. It's just the nature of the beast. Uh, Similarly, the final season of Room 104, I really liked the first season of Room 104 and haven't had the chance to watch any subsequently, which is, again, because there's too much TV. Uh, The new season of Last Chance U, which will be the fifth football season, is also going to be the last allegedly football season. And after two seasons focusing on Abuse of coach Jason Brown. The new season moves to Laney College in Oakland, and it's a very different type of season. It's still fantastic. To me, this is one of the most reliably, consistently well produced documentary series on television. And the new season really is, is very good. It it does smart things involving differentiating between what the Laney program does versus the first couple seasons. It does interesting work focusing on Oakland as a location. And some of the stories of the players are really terrific as well. So that one is a big plus. And, you know, if you like that show, though, you probably already watch it. And as for Helter Skelter, if you're in the boot for a six hour documentary series about Charles Manson, that's probably a self-selecting audience as well. It's a fairly solid series. It has some problems. It's It only has a limited number of talking head subjects from, quote-unquote, the family, which has to do with some of them being in prison, some of them being dead, and some of them not wanting to do talking head segments in a documentary. But that's a limitation. Uh, it also can't quite commit to whether or not it wants to be... An adaptation of Vincent Bugliosi's book, or to debunk Vincent Bugliosi's book of the same name, and so it doesn't quite land there. And it has strange bouts of redundancy that bothered me here and there. But in general, it's still very, very watchable. And uh, you know, it will it will freak you out and disturb you in the ways that a Charles Manson miniseries is probably supposed to. So yeah, you know, you you probably heard the list of the shows premiering in the next few days and you know which shows are for you. So that's the best I can do.
0: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. We'll be back next week when we'll be joined by Grey's Anatomy showrunner Krista Vernoff
1: until then be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us rate us if you really like us write a little review thing these things really help spread the word of mouth and we are always looking to spread the word of mouth we're also always looking to talk to you guys on twitter so come say hi we're here for your questions comments and concerns but as we may have mentioned at least three or four times for future mailbag segments you can email us at TV's Top 5 at thr.com that's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan. Everybody stay safe and wear a mask.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts.